0: The story is told about a group of farmers who were tired of wolves eating all their livestock. And so what they did was they put out a bulletin, and they basically offered $500 to anyone who would kill all the wolves, and it was $500 per wolf. Well, these two young entrepreneurs decided that they wanted to get in on this cash, and so they got their equipment And they went out hunting with their rifles and everything else to try to get these wolves in order to obtain the money. Well, two days they went searching and they came up with nothing. And so one night they were by a campfire. They were exhausted and they fell asleep. And in the middle of the night, one of them woke up hearing a noise and he noticed that there were a number of wolves surrounding their little campfire. He panicked. He woke his friend up and he said to his friend, we're going to die. His friend woke up, saw the wolves, and he said, no, we are rich. And you see, it's a matter of perspective. One thought they were going to die. The other thought they had an opportunity to become rich. You know, the Bible says that you and I are spiritually rich. You know, when we often define wealth in the American culture, we think of material possessions, and rightfully so, you and I are wealthy in terms of material possessions, but more important than material possessions, is spiritual wealth. And the Bible says you and I are rich spiritually. But a lot of Christians don't understand their spiritual wealth. And what they do is they walk in poverty throughout their Christian life. Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning as we begin a new book, the book of Ephesians. Open up, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 14. Now, I have to admit in frustration, what I'm about to share with you this morning could be literally one message per point, but we don't have time this morning to cover that, so I'm going to give you a cursory overview of this topic of our spiritual blessings or our spiritual wealth in Jesus Christ. Now, when we looked at the book of Galatians, typically books have themes to them, sometimes multiple themes. The book of Galatians, the theme was, we're justified by faith alone and not good works. Now, when we get to the book of Ephesians, the theme of this book is the church, the body of Christ. What do I mean by the church? The church is not a building with a steeple. Often when you hear people talk about the church, they'll say, I'm going to church at 11 o'clock. They're going to a building. The Bible defines the church not as a building, but as a body of believers who have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And so the church is not a building. It is rather people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the metaphors used to describe the church is called the body of Christ. And I remember when I first studied that concept, I really couldn't understand what that idea of the body of Christ. And so, it dawned on me one day, there are two aspects. You'll notice the diagram up on the screen. Body number one refers to Jesus' physical body on this earth. Jesus came to earth He ministered in a physical body to people, and then what happened in Acts chapter 1? He ascended back to heaven, and his physical body is no longer here. That was the physical body of Christ. Now, Jesus has put his Holy Spirit in all of us, and we are his spiritual body. That's why we often say we are the hands, we are the feet, we are the mouth of Jesus. Why? Because we represent Jesus in the world. We are his spiritual body. Now, here's an interesting question. When the world looks at the church, they're getting a picture of Jesus. And the question is this, what type of picture are they getting of Jesus when they look at not just one local church, but remember, the Bible talks about the church being not only local, but universal. What kind of picture is the world getting when they look at the church, which is Jesus' representative on this earth? And so, the theme of the book of Ephesians is he's going to talk about the church, the body of Christ. Not one local church. Paul is going to talk about the universal church, whether you live in Africa, South America, the Far East, the Middle East, wherever you are, he's going to talk about that universal church. And so, we can really outline the book of Ephesians by using the church as the theme. Paul is going to show us in the book of Ephesians the spiritual blessings of the church He's going to show us the power of the church. He's going to show us the head of the church. He's going to show us the salvation of the church in chapter two. He's going to show us in chapter two the unity of the church. Chapter three, he'll show us the mission of the church. In chapter three, he'll show us the purpose of the church. In chapters four through six, he shows us the walk of the church, our behavior. And then finally, he ends the book by talking about the warfare of the church. And so, that's kind of an overview of the theme of the church within the book of Ephesians. In fact, some people try to simplify it by giving three words to basically give you an overview of the book. They talk about our wealth, they talk about our walk, and they talk about our warfare. Now, for this morning, what we're going to look at is the first component of the church, and that is our spiritual blessings, our spiritual wealth in Jesus Christ. And before we get into the text, let me just give you some preliminary things about the church and its spiritual blessings. First of all, he says that the blessings are spiritual in nature. Why? Because they come, as he says in chapter 1, from the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice these blessings are are, uh, spiritual and not material. Now, this is a contrast from the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament, when God made promises to Israel... His promises were primarily physical and material. God said, If you do this, here's what I'll do for you I'll bless you. I'll give you victory over your enemies. I'll give you a land. You won't have the sicknesses and diseases that the Egyptians had. Your women will not miscarry. They're the blessings and the cursings of Deuteronomy 28. They were physical and they were material. But when you get to the new covenant, there's a shift. It's not the physical and the material. The emphasis in the new covenant is on the eternal and the spiritual. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Don't store up your treasures here on earth. He said, Store them in heaven. Why? Because there they are permanent, they will not be destroyed. And so you have to understand that Paul talks here about our blessings. He's not talking about our material blessings, he's talking about our spiritual blessings. And by the way, just as a footnote, This is the era that the prosperity theology makes. What a lot of those teachers do is they camp out in the Old Testament and they say, look, the Old Testament says you won't have sickness, you won't have disease, you're going to have all this prosperity. But here's the problem they never make the shift from the Old Covenant to the New. Now, that's not to say that the Old Covenant's not important, but they never make the shift in the New Covenant, which says the emphasis is not material you may be blessed. God may give you wealth materially, and that's fine. He often does. But there are believers all over the world that don't have anything materially. They are poor, but they are spiritually rich. Furthermore, when Paul talks about our spiritual blessings, you have to understand that they're all tied to being in Christ. In fact, that word, in Christ, in the book of Ephesians is mentioned 10 times And in all of Paul's letters, which he wrote 13 of them, he mentions the phrase in Christ 75 times. It is unique to Pauline theology. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, the Bible says prior to being in Christ, you were in Adam. Adam represents death. Everybody's born in Adam. Adam is our federal head. And what happens at the moment of salvation when you trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into Christ so that you are one with Christ? It's an indivisible union. What God does is He unites you to Jesus Christ, and when He sees Christ, He sees you. I like to use this visual right here. Pretend, for example, this is Jesus Christ, and this represents you. The Bible says that the moment of salvation, God baptizes you into Christ, and so you are one with Christ. So when God sees you, who does He see? He sees Christ. And you see, all of our spiritual blessings are tied to Christ. If you're not in Christ, you don't have spiritual blessings, you have spiritual cursings. And by the way, that is unique to Christianity because you will never see in other world religions where they talk about being in Buddha, being in Confucius, being in Muhammad. No, that is unique to you and I. And so God has to unite us to Jesus Christ if we're not going to experience God's wrath because all of our blessings are tied up to being in Jesus Christ. And so we say this, you got to know who you are in Christ you got to know your spiritual blessings if you and I are going to not only praise God on a daily basis, but if we're going to walk in victory in our Christian life, we got to know who we are in Jesus Christ, and we need to know the spiritual blessings that God has given us. So with that, let's look at our spiritual blessings. But before we do, Paul here is going to give us some introductory material in regard to this. Notice, if you will, verse 1 This is a common greeting that he would do throughout all of his epistles. He says, Paul, and by the way, the word Paul in the Greek means little. We know from extra biblical literature that Paul was small in stature, and even though he was small physically, he was a giant spiritually. His Jewish name was Saul. He identifies himself in verse 1 as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, why would Paul often do this? Was he pulling rank no, not in an arrogant sense, but what he was doing by calling himself an apostle was basically establishing his authority right at the outset. Remember he did that in Galatians because the Judaizers were saying, your gospel is your own invention, and he says, no, I'm an apostle. I got my message directly from Christ. Now, to be an apostle, you had to be chosen by Christ, and you had to see the risen Christ, and so Paul actually qualified to be an apostle. An apostle. Is one who is chosen and sent out with the special mission, and they have the authority of the one who sent them. The word means to send. Now, the debate today is are there still apostles today? In one sense, no. I like to call them big A apostles. The big A apostles represent the 13, they were unique. And there are no more 13 apostles, as it were, because their names are going to be on the stones in the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, so we know that they were unique. They were the foundation of the church, according to Ephesians 2. They laid doctrine down. And so there are no more big A apostles, but there are still today little A apostles mentioned in Ephesians 4, where it says he gave to the church some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Who are these little A apostles today? Well, we speculate, but some of them believe it's church planners, it's missionaries, it's people that extend outward. Because remember, the word means to be sent out with a special mission. Now, Paul here is saying, I'm a big A apostle not in an arrogant sense, but he's saying, look, what I'm about to tell you in the book of Ephesians about the church is not my opinion. This is direct revelation by God. And he said, I was called to be an apostle by the will of God. God knocked me off my beast. And he said, here's what you're to do, Paul. And Paul said in Acts 26, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And then he identifies his readers in verse 1. He says to the saints who are at Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice he calls them saints here. The word saint here means to set apart. We get the word sanctification from this. We get the word holy. And listen, all Christians are saints. This isn't for a special class of people that have been canonized like in the Catholic church. The fact of the matter is we are all saints. By definition, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. What does that mean? It means that salvation, God set you apart unto Himself, and He made you holy positionally. So, when God sees me on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the highest in terms of perfect holiness, I am a perfect 10. You are a perfect 10 positionally. Now, practically, I know I don't always act saintly. You see, the goal of the Christian life is to allow your practice to match your position. Because I am a saint, I need to act like a saint. You see, my position is I've been set apart and made holy initially, and then there's that ongoing process of becoming more a saint where I'm more holy. But listen, positionally, I'm a perfect 10, and so are you. And so, you know what the goal of the Christian life is? To allow your practice to match your position. And by the way, this is our identity as Christians. Too often we define our identity by what we do, where we work, who we know. In our culture today, everything is defined by your gender, your sexual orientation. Listen, as Christians, we are defined, our identity is wrapped up in the fact that we are saints of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here identifies his readers, and he says, you guys are a bunch of saints, and the implication is you need to act like it. And then he says this, grace to you and peace, verse 2, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a common greeting in that day. What he's saying is when you and I accept God's grace, unmerited favor, what happens is we have peace with God and we have the peace of God as we trust in God. And so this was a common greeting in that day. Paul establishes his credentials and then he identifies his readers. Now, You have to understand, this letter, many commentators believe, was not written specifically to the believers in Ephesus. I know it says Ephesians on it, but if you go to earlier and better manuscripts, they leave out the word Ephesus. And many people believe this was a circular letter. Let me tell you what I mean. If you'll notice the screen up here, you'll notice that Paul left Antioch over here on the right and he did his third missionary journey. Paul did three. There was a fourth one uh, that we can piece together. But he went right here to Ephesus. This was sort of a port city right here. It's about 250,000 people. It was second in size to Rome. He ministered there about two and a half to three years. And the Bible says this in the next slide, that while he was there, next slide, it says here that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, What happened, if you read Acts chapter 19, it says that Paul lectured daily at a banquet hall. It was called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. Archaeologists have uncovered this. And what he would do, according to the Greek, is he would engage in dialogue. Hey, Paul, what did you mean by this? Hey, Paul, uh, I got a question related to this issue right here. And so they would dialogue. And you know what it says? It says all of Asia in Acts chapter 19 heard the word of the Lord. And so many people believe that these churches right here that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, they were started from Paul's ministry here in Ephesus. And so the Ephesian letter wasn't written specifically necessarily to Ephesus, although this was the biggest city out of all of these. This letter not only went to the Ephesian Christians, but it was a circular letter that encountered all these Christians in this particular locale. Now, let me just give you a little bit of flavor of the city of Ephesus because that's where Paul did minister. It was his base of operation. It was a beachhead. Here is kind of an artist's rendition of Ephesus, what it probably looked like, 250,000 people. You'll notice here it's a port city. The port has been taken over by silt. Next slide. Here are some actual archaeological ruins of the area. Next slide. You'll notice here this is the walkway uh, that actually led to the port. Next slide. You'll notice here some of the ruins here and this one is an interesting one. Next one, you'll notice the stadium. This is where they had a lot of the events in Ephesus. If you read Acts 19, there was a riot that was there and here's where it took place. And they shouted to their false god. If you look at this slide right here, this is the god that they worship, Diana or Artemis. And there was a lot of demonic activity in this area. How do I know that? Because if you read Acts chapter 19, There was a lot of exorcisms going on. People took their religious paraphernalia, their demonic paraphernalia that they used for worship, and they threw it in the fire. And so it seems to be a lot of demonic activity going on. And by the way, this would be consistent with terminology used in the book of Ephesians. Why? Because he talks about the heavenly places He talks about you and I in chapter 2 are seated in the heavenly places. And then in chapter 6, he talks about putting on the armor of God, spiritual warfare. And so this book has a lot of implications in terms of the demonic and the spiritual because he says ultimately that's where our spiritual blessings come from. So with that introduction, Paul now is going to delineate for us our spiritual blessings that are in Jesus Christ. Again, I'm going to give you a jet tour of these. We're going to go through them real quickly. We could spend one message on each of these, but for the sake of time, we will move forward. First of all, Paul says we are rich spiritually because we have been chosen in Jesus Christ. We have been chosen in Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, notice he opens up right away with blessing. He opens up with praise. You know what the word there means? It means to eulogize God. When you go to a eulogy, what are you doing? You're speaking well of that person. You know what he's saying here? We need to bless God. We need to eulogize God. And notice how he identifies God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Well, you'll have people today say that the God of Christianity and the God of Islam are the same. Islam is what they want to call it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Islam doesn't believe that God had a son. And you see, what separates Christianity from Islam and every other world religion is God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't listen to anybody who says the God of Christianity and the God of Islam are the same. They are not. And so he opens up with a paean of praise and he worships God. Why? because he says he has blessed us. There are our spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's the source. And notice they're in Christ. There's that phrase. And then verse 4, he lists the first spiritual blessing. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. You know, you and I are blessed. Why? Because before God created time, space, and matter, God had you in mind. You are part of God's choice before the foundation of the world. He wrote your name according to Revelation 13 and 17 in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And you know what that does? That gives you significance. Now, I realize when you get into this doctrine of being chosen, predestination, divine election, you enter into territory that has been controversial since the inception of theology. People have debated this. Did God choose you or did you choose God? The answer is both. On the one hand, the Bible says God chooses us, God elects us, God predestinates us, but on the other hand, we're not robots. The Bible says we have freedom of choice, and so there is a tension between God's choice and man's sovereignty. Notice the diagram up on the screen. You will notice that God's sovereignty is clearly taught in the Scripture. You can't get around that. I mean, again, we could spend one message on this idea of God choosing us for salvation, but the Bible also teaches human responsibility, and man's free will. And so on the one hand, God chose me for salvation. On the other hand, I'm responsible to believe. And if on the day of judgment, a non-believer stands before God and says, God, the reason I'm going to hell is because you did not choose me, God's going to say, no, the reason why you're going to hell is because you rejected my son. And so God choosing people doesn't preclude everyone having an opportunity. Some people say, well, if God chooses us, that means He's only selected a certain amount and He's basically condemned the rest to hell. No. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I like what D.L. Moody said. He said, using a metaphor, when you and I die and we walk through the pearly gates, on the front of the gate, it's going to have the verse in Romans 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, heaven's for all people. He says, but when you walk through the pearly gates... And he says, you turn around and you look at the back of the gate, it's going to say chosen in him before foundation of the world. You see, those two concepts are taught. They're inseparably linked, but we cannot understand them. It's a paradox, but in the mind of God, they are resolved. Now, why did God choose you? To go around with a pompous attitude? No. God chose us that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. In other words, God is making us holy now, progressive sanctification, but He's going to make us ultimately holy in glorification. But until then, you know what Paul says? I love the terminology he uses in Ephesians 5. He says the church has spots and it has wrinkles. Now, when we get to heaven, there's going to be no spots, no wrinkles. But until then, you know what God uses? He uses His spiritual... fade cream, porcelain of fade cream. And you know what he's doing? He's working out those spots. He's working out those wrinkles in our life to make us holy. And so here's the question, are you walking in holiness? By the way, some people are holier than others. You've heard people say holier than thou. There are some people that are holier. They're more set apart. And you know what? God wants you this morning to walk in a lifestyle of holiness. That doesn't mean Perfection. It doesn't mean you may not blow it royally, but are you keeping a short account of sin? Some of you this morning may be holding on to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. You see, holiness means you let that go. Some of you may be addicted to pornography. God wants you to let that go, or maybe it's it's a substance, or maybe it's you are not working on your marriage. Now listen, it's your job to do what you need to do in your marriage. If your partner doesn't want to do anything, that's on them. But to have an attitude that says, you know what? I don't care if my marriage ends. No, listen, holiness means you deal sometimes with the unpleasant. And so you and I have been chosen. That is our spiritual blessing. There's a second blessing that he notes for us here in Ephesians chapter 1, and that is we are adopted. Verse 4 through 6, He says, in love. Notice the motive. God did this not because we were good, not because we were better looking than that guy over there or that girl over there. He didn't do it because He found something worthy in us. His motivation was love. And watch what He did in verse 5. He predestined us. He marked us out beforehand to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself. You see, God called us into His family, and notice again why He did it? According to the kind intention of His will. God did it because He wanted to do it. God did it because it pleased Him. And notice who we should praise in verse 6. He says, this adoption, this election is to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Notice we've been blessed in an abundance. It doesn't say that God measures out His grace in a very limited fashion, it says that we are lavished with God's grace. But he says our second spiritual blessing is you and I have been adopted in the family of God. You see, prior to salvation, you and I were orphans. We were children of the devil, according to First John chapter 2. John says there are the children of God and the children of the devil. In fact, you could divide up all of humanity into only two categories. Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Or I like what one friend says, there's only two people in the world, the saints and the aints. And so listen, if you have been adopted by God, you're no longer in Adam, you're in the family of God. You're not an orphan. Jesus said in John's Gospel before he left, I don't leave you as orphans. And you know what happens according to Galatians and the book of Romans? When we are adopted into the family of God by believing in Jesus Christ... We receive the inheritance and we receive all the rights of a fully mature son and daughter. Remember what we said in Galatians in that day? You may have been an adopted child and you had all the same privileges and rights as a biological child. However, as long as you were young, you could not get the inheritance until you reached that age. Then the father would say, you have all the inheritance. You see, we come into the family as fully mature sons and daughters, and you know what? We have the inheritance. And again, what this says to us is we cry out, Abba, Father. God is our Papa. He's not a distant deity. He's not a cosmic killjoy. God is a loving, intimate Father, and He wants us to bring our burdens and our needs to Him because He cares for us. You say, why doesn't God always deal with all my problems? Well, listen, you and I would never grow if God just corrected everything in our life all the time. Listen, God is allowing evil in this planet it seems like it's going unchecked, but listen, God's got it under control. You know what He's doing? He's letting free will play out. See, God respects our will enough not to violate it, and He will let death and destruction and all these things to happen. Why? Because He's working His purposes out. And so God, as as a child of God who's been adopted into God's family, I may not understand why God doesn't always correct my problems, but know this, I'm part of the family of God you are my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us, and we cry out, Abba, Father. And so we're blessed. We've been chosen. We've been adopted. There's a third spiritual blessing that he notes for us in chapter 1, and that is we are redeemed. Verse 7, in Him, see there's that phrase, in Him 10 times in Ephesians, we have redemption through His blood. Now, in the first century Rome they estimate there were probably about 60 million slaves. That's a lot of slaves. And so when Paul borrowed from this social custom, the church of that day would fully understand, we understand slavery because it's a part of our history. And the idea is this, if a person was enslaved, a master would come along, and if he wanted that slave, what he would do is he had to pay a redemption price. Once he paid the price, he would either get the slave and set the slave free, or he would keep the slave and the slave would have a new master. And so the analogy is this prior to salvation, you and I were s- slaves to sin, the system, we were slaves to Satan. What God did was he paid the redemption price. He says here the blood of his son in verse 7. And what God did was he purchased this out of the slave market of sin. And you know what Jesus did? Listen to this He set us free. And we now have a new master. And so, watch this oxymoron. We are free slaves. Wait a minute, you say. What do you mean free slaves? Listen, we're free in Jesus Christ, and he's our master. And that's why he says in the Bible don't go back to your former slavery. Why? God delivered you out of the slave market of sin. Why are you going to go back to your former manner of life? He delivered us out of Egypt. Why are we going to want to go back to the leeks, the onions, and the garlic? You see, the world pulls us. It wants us to go back into that, but we have to remember that because I'm redeemed, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I have victory over sin. That doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect, but it does mean I have the power to say no to sin. And listen, all of us here can give testimony as to how God redeemed us. I was listening to Norman Geisler the other day. Norman Geisler is considered the father of all of these apologetics guys. Frank Turek, who spoke here last week, other guys that are well-known in the apologetic world that defend Christianity before the atheist, many of them will trace their roots back to Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler has written like 80 books. He's the consummate apologist. He's not a great debater, but he's a very, very intellectually smart man. And I was listening to his testimony the other day, and he said, I grew up in a non-religious home. He said, I was at a funeral one time, and I noticed a picture up on the wall, and he said, I didn't even know who Jesus was. He said, I asked my mom, who is that? Is that Santa Claus? That's who we thought Jesus was up on the wall. He had no idea. Well, this church reached out to him, and they invited him to Sunday school. He said for the next seven or eight years, they picked him up Sunday after Sunday, and he said he was a rambunctious kid. He said he got in a lot of trouble He said he went to church 399 times. I guess he counted it. And he said this, it was the 400th time that he heard the gospel and got saved. And you know what? He called one of the ladies in his his class that taught him. She's now over 100 years old because he's in his uh, 80s. He called her and he said, I want to thank you for your faithfulness. All those years when there was no hope for me, it was that 400th time, that I heard the gospel, and look what God has done with him. You see, God redeemed him. He purchased us out of slavery. And so, what are our spiritual blessings? We've been chosen, we've been adopted, we've been redeemed. Fourthly, he notes for us our spiritual blessing when he says this, we are forgiven. Verse 7, he says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. Notice what happens when we're redeemed. We receive the forgiveness of our trespasses And it says here, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. God has forgiven us. What does it mean to be forgiven? It simply means this. At the moment of salvation, God cancels your debt. You see, you have a sin debt. I have a sin debt. And we can never pay God back. In fact, people in hell, they're going to be paying back their sin debt throughout all eternity. But what happens is when you come to Jesus and you admit your debt... What God does is He cancels your debt in full because Jesus paid the debt on the cross when He said, to die it is finished. And God forgives us, past, present, and future, all of our sins. They have been wiped away. They have been forgiven. In fact, the Greek word here goes back to the Day of Atonement. Notice the picture up on the screen. On the Day of Atonement, what the priests would do is they would take two goats. You could read about this in Leviticus 16 and they would basically offer up one of these goats as a sacrifice. Then there was a second goat, and here's what they would do. The priest would lay his hand on that second goat, and what he would do is he would symbolically confess the sins of the nation of Israel, because that was the purpose of the Day of Atonement. All the sins they forgot to confess, they were kind of all taken up and they were put on this goat symbolically. He would lay his hands on the goat, and then here's what he would do in the next picture. He would send this goat out into the wilderness, and that was symbolic of the sins of Israel being sent away. That's the Greek word used here. It's saying that God sends our sins away. As far as the east is from the west, God forgives us. And listen, if you're forgiven, when you confess your sins to God, accept His forgiveness Stop walking around with the spirit of condemnation. I know the greater the sin, we feel more guilt. But listen, if you go to God and you say, God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, confess it and move on. Stop beating yourself up. You say, well, wait a minute, Mike. If God's forgiven me all my sins, past, present, future, why do I really need to confess my sin? The reason why is spiritual liquid Drano. You know what spiritual liquid Drano is? Listen, you know what liquid Drano is. I know having three daughters with all the hair that gets in the drain. I, listen, I have stock in liquid Drano. And what happens when you pour it down the drain? It unclogs the pipe. And you see, in our Christian life, even though we're forgiven past, present, future, many times we sin. And what we do is we confess, we agree with God that what we did is wrong, and that keeps the pipes clean. It doesn't mean that when I sin, I lose my salvation. I've already been forgiven, past, present and future, but I confess my sins, first John 1, in order to keep the spiritual pipes. And by the way, it says here that we're forgiven according to the riches of His grace. Now watch this distinction. He doesn't say it's out of his riches. he says it's according to his riches. For example, if you went to Bill Gates and you said, "Look, I need11,000 dollars in order to do this thing over here, could you write me a check? If Bill Gates wrote you a check for $50, he would be giving out of his riches. But what if you went to Bill Gates and you said, "Look, I need $11,000 for this project, and Bill Gates writes you a check for $100,000, and he says, here, here's a lot extra in case you need more. He would be giving you out of his riches. No, he'd be giving you according to his riches, not out of his riches. He would be giving you according to his riches. And you see, God doesn't give us out of his riches. He gives us according to the riches of his grace. He lavishes us forgiveness upon us. Well, there's a fifth spiritual blessing as we wind down, and that is this we are enlightened. Notice what he says in verse 8 through 10. He says, In all wisdom and insight, there's the enlightenment. God has given us all wisdom and insight. How? He made known to us the mystery of his will. What is a mystery? Something hidden in the past but now revealed. So whatever this is, God has now revealed it to His church. And notice what He says, according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him. In other words, this mystery has to do with Christ. Well, what is it? Verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, and here's the mystery that we've been enlightened. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven, And things upon the earth. You say, What is he talking about there? He's saying this. This is so great. He's saying that God has given us wisdom and insight. He's enlightened us to what's going to happen in the future. You say, What's going to happen in the future? What he is saying is, God is going to bring everything in subjection to Jesus Christ, He's going to bring everything under the unity and headship of Jesus Christ. He calls it the administration suitable to the fullness of times. When history reaches its culmination, what's going to happen? Jesus Christ is going to return at His second coming, and you know what He's going to do? He's now going to become the head, not only of this earth, but He's going to bring everything in subjection to Him, because right now, everything is splintered. Right now, everything is fragmented. Yes, He is the head of your life and my life in the church, but right now He's not the head of the universe in the sense that He has come back and set up His thousand-year kingdom and His eternal state. He's in control of all things, but not everything right now is subject to Him. God is waiting till the fullness of time. He calls it the suitable administration. What He's saying is there's coming a time in the future during the millennial kingdom, and and also the eternal state where everything is going to be subjected to Jesus Christ. And you know what? You and I know where history's headed. That's how he's enlightened us. He's given us wisdom and insight. You say, well, what's the big deal of that? Listen, if you ask the average Joe who doesn't know Jesus Christ, where is history headed? They can't tell you. They'll speculate. And listen, even in other religions, they believe history is cyclical. You and I know it's linear. God began it all. God will consummate it all. And so we know where history's headed. And we have wisdom and insight. Non-believers will go, well, maybe there's life after death. Yeah, I heard about Jesus Christ coming back, but that's kind of fairy taleish stuff. Listen, you and I have the privilege of knowing where history's headed. And you know what that should do? Are you listening? Say amen. That should motivate us to invest our time, our treasure, and our talents in service to Him. Listen, if you're not motivated, if you're not on fire to invest your time, your treasures, your talents, your testimony because of where history is headed, listen, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. That shouldn't motivate us because, listen, I'm going to stand before the King of Kings one day, not for hell and condemnation because I've been saved, but I'm going to stand before Him and give an account of my life. And I want Him to say, well done, good and faithful servant, and so do you. And so, I want to challenge you. Don't be a lazy Christian. Don't get sucked into the vortex of this age where you're living for the things of this age and you're not living for kingdom values because we have wisdom and insight. I know where history's headed. And listen, either I'm going to die before he comes back or I'm going to be alive when the rapture takes place. So, either way, we know where history is headed and that should motivate us to walk with him. Well, there's a sixth spiritual blessing that we have. And there are two more. I'll end these real quickly. It says we've been given an inheritance. Notice, if you will, verses 10 through 12. Again, there's the phrase, in him, 10 times in Ephesians. In him also, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, the Greek says we already have it. God's already deposited in our spiritual bank account. We just haven't experienced it yet. It's the already not yet we have an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. What is he saying there? He's saying this inheritance that you and I are going to get, that was predetermined by God. Why? Because God is not caught off guard. He works all things after the counsel of his will. The Holocaust, God works all things after the counsel of his will. 9-11, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Cancer in my life, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Tragic death, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, this is not to say that he's involved in the evil choices of men. People make their choices, but listen, nothing catches God off guard, even our inheritance. He says we've been given this inheritance, and it's not just for Gentiles. Look at verse 12, to the end, that we who were the first to hope, who's that? The Jewish people? We were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Listen, this inheritance is not just for Gentiles, Paul says, it's for the Jews. And so you and I are going to get an inheritance. Now, what is this inheritance? This inheritance is eternal life. When you and I die, we get eternal life. You say, Mike, give me something more exciting than that. Listen, I can't give you anything more exciting than eternal life. Because when you stand before God, the minute you take your last breath and you are ushered into eternity, listen, you're going to realize that your inheritance is so great, nothing on earth can compare. I don't care if you win billions of dollars in the lottery, that is nothing compared to the inheritance that you and I are going to get, which is eternal life. And by the way, eternal life is not just a quantity of life, it is a quality of life. Now, I believe the inheritance is more than just eternal life. I believe it's the fullness of our reward. See, we're joint heirs with Christ. And when you and I faithfully serve Jesus, we're going to inherit all that God has. And I do believe there are rewards for Christians who are more faithful to God. Now, we're not going to be jealous in heaven. You're not going to look at somebody and say, you know what, Lord, I tithe more than him. Why does he get that? I like what one person said, we're all going to have cups in heaven And they're all going to be filled, but some people's cups are going to be bigger than others. And you know what? God will dole that out according to His wisdom. I know there are a lot of people that are going to stand way in line ahead of me, Christians who have sacrificed their life, who have suffered overseas for their faith. But you know what? We are rich in Jesus Christ. You may be poor materially, you may be living on the edge, but the Bible says you got an inheritance coming, and the Bible says you're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Well, there's one final spiritual blessing this morning. We are sealed. And by the way, have you noticed the Trinity has been involved in this? The Father chooses us, the Son redeems us, and here the Spirit seals us. You see, the Trinity is involved in our spiritual blessings. There it is right there. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all distinct in person, but one in essence. The Father selects us, verse 3, He chooses us the Son sacrifices in order to redeem us, and then here the Spirit seals us. Notice what he says in verse 13, in him, you also. Now here he's shifting and he's talking to Gentiles. In verse 12, he was talking to the Jews. Now he's talking to the Gentiles in Ephesus and all that area of Asia Minor. He says, after listening to the message of truth, when you heard the message, the gospel of your salvation, notice when you believed, here it is, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. God gave you the seal. When, how, how long? Verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, God sealed you. Now, what was a seal in ancient times? You'll notice the picture up here. This was archaeologically. They found this ring. There are many more. But what would happen is a king would take his ring, and he would stamp wet clay, sometimes on a letter. And what that represented, when you saw that seal of the king, it represented authenticity. It represented security. And what happened, he says, that salvation is the moment you and I believed— God took, as it were, His spiritual signet ring, and you know what He did? He stamped us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal. You say, why would He give me that seal? Well, not only to say that I'm an authentic child of God, I'm owned by God, and I'm genuine, but watch this. How do I know God is going to be good on His promise to me to give me eternal life? In the previous verse, He said we're going to get an inheritance. God, how can I trust You? How do I know, Father, that you're going to be good on your promise? God says, "Mike, you know what? To show you how serious I am, that I'm going to give you that inheritance, I'm going to give you a down payment. I'm going to give you a deposit." And that deposit is the seal of the Holy Spirit, cuz he says that seal is good to the day of redemption when God takes us home and we have a redeemed body. It's a divine engagement ring. That's the Greek word arabon. In fact, I was looking up this week the most expensive engagement ring ever given. Does anybody know? Mariah Carey. Her engagement ring was $10 million. I want you to think about that 35 carats. But listen, that's nothing compared to the seal that God has stamped us with in the Holy Spirit. And you know what that says to us? That we are secure until God takes us home. And listen, God will always deliver on His promises to you and I. We have the seal guaranteeing our future. And so what are our spiritual blessings as we close this morning? You and I are rich. We are rich spiritually. Here they are. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. He says we are enlightened, we know the future, we are given an inheritance, we are sealed. And I wanted to hit the last one, but we don't have time this morning. We are empowered, as he says at the end of Ephesians 1, we have the resurrected power of Christ living on the inside of us in order to manifest the life of Christ on this earth. And so, walk around this week. Notice how he ends this epistle, or the beginning of it, and here should be our response. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what we should be doing, people? Blessing God for our spiritual blessings every day. God, thank you for all these blessings. Now, they may not seem significant now, but we have to treat them as if they are significant and walk accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for our spiritual blessings. God, we are so rich spiritually. And I'm reminded of what you said to the church at Smyrna that was experiencing persecution. You said, I see your poverty, but even though you're poor, Jesus, you said to the church at Smyrna, you are rich. And I thank you, God, for our spiritual wealth. Help us to live our lives in light of this. Help us to walk in holiness, obedience, victory. Help us not to walk with the sense of failure that we don't matter because your word says we do matter. We are children of God. We have value. And help us, Lord God, to share these riches with the world. Father, we have an obligation not to hoard our spiritual wealth, but to share it with the lost and dying world. I pray that at Calvary Chapel, we would do that. Father, we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.